those fun Bible app things, go ahead and open it up to the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul plants a church in the worst city in the world. And over the next five years, he has correspondence back and forth with his church as they face all kinds of issues. Churches have issues. Uh, they had them back then, and we have them today. So uh, we're going to look, uh, really today we're going to be in chapters 8 through 10, which is a big hunk. So I'm going to move quickly. Uh, let's look at uh, chapter 8, verse 1. He says, now regarding your question. So in this section of uh, Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, he probably got a letter from them saying, hey, we got issues here. we got questions. We don't know what to do with this. And Paul is going down the list, the laundry list of issues and questions. And now the next one. Now regarding your question about food that has been offered to idols. Let's fast forward and see what else he says. Look in verses 4 through 7. He says, so what about eating meat that has been offered to idols? Just hold right there for a second, Zach. Okay, so... I can tell Paul is thinking uh, kind of as he's, uh, you know, he's kind of thinking off the cuff. He's kind of, kind of moving around as he's thinking because really he doesn't start talking about idols until chapter 10. It's almost an afterthought. He, he kind of gets going and then in chapter 10 he, he spends a few verses, uh, 20 verses or so, talking about idols. He goes all the way back to Israel's history with idols and getting bit by snakes and dying and all this kind of stuff. And basically, his whole message about idols is, number one, don't rouse the Lord's jealousy. That word is, it means to boil up and boil over, right? You, you know what that means. He, so, he says, so related to idols, don't rouse the Lord's jealousy. Like you can't hold the sacred things of God and the idolatrous things of the world at the same time. And so he says, flee from the worship of idols. Now let's go back to chapter eight. He says, well, we all know that an idol is not really a God and that there is only one God. So there may be so-called gods both in heaven and on earth. And some people actually worship many gods and many lords. But for us, there's only one God, the Father, by whom all things were created and for whom we live. Keep going. And there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom we live. However, don't you love when people add this? However, not everybody got the memo, <laughs> right? Remember, this is a letter to people in the church. He says, however, not all believers know this. And some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real, right? What's he saying? No, there's only one God. Idols are not real. But some are used to this way of thinking. And that's, that's a pretty popular idea This this day and age when in the time of Corinth, right? Like, like they believed in every kind of spirit and boogie monster you could ever imagine. Under every, bit, un, under every bed was a spirit lurking to get them. In every shadow was a spirit lurking to get them. I mean, I mean, they were a highly, highly superstitious world. I mean, just think about like what we know about medicine and how the body works versus what they knew about medicine and how the body works, right? 
like if the rain fell or didn't fall, that was always a result of the gods. If you were sick or if you were well, that was always a result of some spiritual force at work in the world. If you lost your hair, it was probably an evil spirit. And I agree with that. <laughs> right? Like, they just, they, this was the world they lived in. They believed that, that, that these things were real. And they had idols set up to every kind of God and spirit out there. And what these spirits wanted more than anything else was to somehow get inside of you. That was the real goal of Jesus tells this story about a guy who is, he, he has a spirit exercised out of him, but he doesn't put anything in. And seven more spirits, even, I think it's seven, seven more spirits come back worse than before, right? The goal of these dark, evil spirits was always to get inside of you, right? And one of the ways they did that was through food. Zach, go back to that verse just for a second. We'll, we'll finish it up. He says, however, not all believers know this. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real. So when they eat food that has been offered to idols, they think of it as worship of real gods. And their weak conscience I can't say a word, are violated. Do you see how this works? So essentially, if you go into the marketplace of Corinth, you see food out spread out everywhere, and it would be really, really difficult to find some food that wasn't in some way, shape, or form offered to some idol, that wasn't offered to some spirit or wasn't dedicated to some god or wasn't dedicated to, to some belief somewhere, Right? Because remember, these spirits want to try to get inside of you, and food goes inside of you. So we got to make sure that all of this food is protected, right? And some people would say even eating this food that was dedicated to this god or this idol was a form of idol worship. And so the Corinthian church, like part of the issue is like, okay, how do we navigate this? right? First, Paul tells us these things aren't real, right? They're not real. It's just superstition. Um, and then Paul will tell them related to food, he'll say, eat whatever you want. Just in a few verses, he's going to quote Psalm 24. It says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He's going to tell them like you can't gain God's favor or lose God's favor by what you eat, right? So if these idols aren't real, then food dedicated to idols means nothing, right? So you have freedom. Just eat whatever you want to eat, right? For, for Paul, it's, it's almost not an issue. So if, if idolatry is really not the issue, I mean, he's covered this. Flee from the worship of idols. Don't rouse the Lord's jealousy. And food dedicated to idols is not real stuff. What is the issue Paul is trying to get at? It's not idolatry. It's not food. What is at issue? Um, for me, in my way of thinking, the issue is Ottomans. You guys have an Ottoman in your house? This is actually our Ottoman, our family's Ottoman, stains and all. We got kids. You know, 
So we eat on our ottoman, we put our feet on our ottoman, our ottoman, this is our ottoman that lives, our, our living room is naked right now, right? It lives in the middle of our living room. And to go anywhere in our house, you have to go past our ottoman. It's a very lovely ottoman. It came from, what's that name? Head Springs Depot. Have you guys been there? They don't give me, like, sponsorship, but Headsprings Depot is awesome. Um, write that down. That's a special note for you. So we have a lovely ottoman from Headsprings Depot, right? Sits in the middle of our house, in the middle of our living room, and you have to walk past it to go anywhere, right? To go to the kitchen, to go to the bedrooms, to go outside. Here it is right in the middle. It's big, Right? Lovely. You guys can see it. Can everybody see it? Um, I would swear to you that this ottoman moves. All right, so I have permission to do this, but I'm going to tell a story about my wife. This ottoman sits in the middle of our living room, and my wife constantly stubs her toe on it. Right? Have any of you ever stubbed your toe, like, really good? Like, it's white, hot pain, like, make you speak in tongues, kind of, like, the neighbors next door heard what you said, kind of, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know, my wife's toes and this ottoman have a magnet, and it's got, like, little sharp corners down here on the bottom. And so what will happen, I'm going to say seven times a week, is my wife walks past the ottoman that is there every single day and stubs her toe and then is I was going to say my favorite then my favorite uh, thing she does is after she stubs her toe the white hot pain comes and then she gets down like this <laughs> right where she stubs her toes and then do you know what you say oh, no <laughs> Yes, that is. But the first thing he usually says is, I'm going to throw up. I'm going to throw up. Right? And <laughs> just advice for husbands, uh, your response should not be laughter. I'm learning this all the time. Still don't know exactly what the right response is, but laughter is not it. So, I actually think this ottoman Especially its ability to stump or stub toes is exactly what Paul is getting at. Here's what I'm saying. Look at this next verse. Paul says in verse 9, and then again in verse 13, he says, But you must be careful. He's right. So idols don't exist, and the food that, that claims to go to them, that's not real either. But he says you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to, what's that word? So if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live. For I don't want to cause another believer to, what's that word? He says in verse 13, if what I eat causes another believer to sin, think about that. I will never eat meat again. 
You see, Paul's chief concern, honestly, is not idolatry or food offered to idols. His chief concern is Christian freedom and the responsibility that comes with that freedom. I love the story of, uh, that, that Mark tells in chapter 5. I have an image of it, I think. Okay, can you guess what story this is just from, by looking at it? Jesus crosses his lake with his disciples. It's a dark and stormy night. And a wild man runs out of the tombs. You know what I'm talking about. You know the story. It says that this man is filled with evil spirits. They've consumed him. And they are so strong and so powerful that no chain can hold him. No shackle can hold him. It says that he can break the chain. Jesus crosses to the shore. This is like a great Halloween story, by the way. And a wild man comes shrieking out of the tombs, it says it, and runs right at Jesus. The disciples have already got back in the boat and started to paddle, right? They're gone. He comes up to Jesus and The demons speak out of him, right? And Jesus eventually will cast out this spirit whose name is Legion, right? For we are many. And Jesus cast these evil spirits into what? Pigs, into swine. So you know it's not a Jewish community, right? And then the man comes and sits at Jesus' feet. Well, the, shepherd of, the shepherds of all the swine, how many were there? 2,000, right? They rushed to town. You won't believe what happened. And the people flood out of town, and they see this man that everybody knew, this wild man, right? They tried to chain him and shackle him. Every kid's, like, nighttime <laughs> or nightmare story involved this guy, Right? And they see him sitting calmly and sanely at Jesus' feet. And they don't even know what to do now. They, in fact, they're so afraid they ask Jesus to leave. But Jesus gives this man who could not be shackled or chained, but now is in his right mind. He gives this man a commission to go and tell people what he's done. And look what it says in Mark chapter 5 and verse 20. It says, so the man, the previous wild, screaming, nightmarish man, started off to visit the ten towns of that region and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was, what's that word? Amazed. This man that no chain could hold him but was bound by every kind of spiritual force you could imagine, was now set free. I want you to know, man, there, there is nothing more real than freedom in Christ. There's nothing more real than, than Christian freedom. Like, we just sang those words, like, are you hurting and broken within, overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. That's 100% true. 
We've seen people break uh, the, the chains of addiction and abuse. We've seen them break, break out of so many things. We've seen freedom from fear. And in Christ, we have freedom from doubt and shame and anxiety and guilt. We have freedom from sin in Jesus Christ. And, and honestly, death actually has no power or authority over us. In Christ, we have been unshackled. But to what purpose? Jesus 100% offers us freedom. But, but freedom to what end? You know, I think sometimes in our world, we, we love to talk about freedom, 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 freedom. But, but I think like our, our view of freedom is more often than not just like, the like best retirement ever. You know, you're you're free. You don't have to go to work anymore. You're free because you don't need anyone or anything else. You you got a good 401k. You're free. You're free to get away from anyone and everyone. You can climb in your RV and just be free. You're free of the need to please or placate others. And I think in our world, like, when we talk about freedom, it's often incredibly self-serving. But Paul has a very different idea of Christian freedom. Look what he says in verse uh, 19. He says, even though I am what? A free man with no master, I become a slave to Christ. A slave to all people to bring many to Christ. Go on, look at what it says in verse uh, 12 and 22. He said, I would rather put up with anything than be an Ottoman <laughs> to the good news about Christ. Are you with me? Are you following? He says, I, I, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. Don't you see Paul like, like the man freed from the legion of demons sees his newfound freedom not as an opportunity to serve self but as an opportunity to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. In his freedom, he sees opportunity and, and responsibility. To this end, he willingly seeks to surrender that thing we most adamantly try to defend and that's our own rights. Paul says, I'll, I'll, I'll do anything it takes. I'm free to do whatever I want, but I'll give up all of that if it would mean one more person coming to Christ. And Paul says, frankly, he says, there's nothing I wouldn't do. There's nothing I wouldn't put up with. I'll work in the church nursery every week. If it meant one more coming to Christ. And it's this attitude of self-sacrifice, like, like that's really the issue Paul wants to get at. They're asking questions about idols and food worship to idols, but, but Paul wants to talk about self-sacrifice. And it's that attitude he wants to cultivate in the Christians of Corinth. And he compares it to an athlete in training. Some of you know this passage of Scripture, verses uh, chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. Go ahead and put it up there, Zach. 
He says, don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize. So run to win. You guys know this? Are you familiar with this passage? He goes on and says, all athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Leave that up there for a second, Zach. So all of you, maybe you've been a Christian a while, you've heard this, run the race, run with discipline, run with perseverance. Did you know that this, that like the context of this passage is about giving up your personal freedom to serve others? Right? The context of this is I'm, I'm disciplining myself. Sure, I'm free to everything, but I'm disciplining myself. And, and the discipline is I'll put up with anything if it meant someone else could come to Christ. That's the discipline he's talking about. And the prize he's talking about isn't just an eternal prize for him, but it's an eternal prize for those who have not heard the gospel yet. And he says, so, so I, I, I run with purpose at every step, in everything I do, in every way, I'm using, I'm, I'm forfeiting my freedom and rights so that I would not be an Ottoman, so that more could come to Christ. In verse 23, he says, I do everything. I do everything to spread the good news and share its blessings. In chapter 10, verse 23, you hear the Corinthian response. Paul is quoting their words. It's probably a popular saying in and around Corinth at that time. He says, you say, I'm allowed to do anything. I'm allowed to do anything. Literally, what it, what it translates is, everything is lawful. Have you ever heard, seen or heard Christians act like this? Like, I've been saved, so now I can do whatever I want. Everything's lawful. I'm allowed to do anything. I'm allowed to do anything. And Paul says, yeah, but not everything is good for you. Not everything is beneficial. And then he comes over the top of that and says, yeah, for sure. You are free in Christ, but don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. Man, I think that idea of I'm allowed to do anything, like I think that was a popular idea then. I think it's pretty popular now too, don't you think? You can't tell me what to do. Yes, of course you're free in Christ, but it's not all good for you. A bigger question is, you're, maybe you are for, you're free in Christ, but how will it affect those who aren't Christians yet? Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. I've got this, uh, I've got this friend who lives in Pensacola. Uh, he's an elder down there at a church that I used to work for, um, but he's not a very good elder because his work schedule keeps him working all the time. Like, he's just super busy. He commutes to work. Like, it just takes up a tremendous amount of his time. Um, and, and so he's maybe not, or maybe he thinks of himself not as a good elder right now. And so whenever I go and see him, like, he's an awesome, faithful guy, but he's just so consumed with work. 
whenever I go and see him, he tells me his countdown to retirement, right? And what he tells me is, I can't wait to retire so I can serve in the church more. Like he's counting down the days of retirement. He said, man, I just, I just, I feel like I need to be at the church so that, so that I can serve people who are sick or hurting. I, and right now my work schedule is just not creating space. I just don't have, I just don't have the time. And I can't wait for the moment that I have more time that I can serve and pour into our church. We got people in our church right here that are doing that same thing. Man, God bless you. God bless that attitude. Right? That's what Paul wants to see and draw out of us. The truth is, like, I love being around people who are free. Don't you? Do you love being around people who are free? But I hate being around people who are free and only serve themselves. And so Paul really, he, he wants to sum it up by giving them, them, them two tasks, two things, two, two I, I think just kind of two big thoughts. And it works like this. In chapter 10, you'll see him. The first, Paul tells them, he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That idea of glory is to shine light on. In the Old Testament, that word means to add weight to. So if there's a scale, you're putting more weight on the scale. And he says, whatever you do, make God weighty. Make, whatever you do, make people see the substance and the heaviness of God. Whatever you do, draw more God to the surface. And if it doesn't draw more God to the surface, then, then don't do it anymore. So he says, use your freedom to make God heavy, to make God big to others. And then the second thing he says is, don't give offense. Don't give offense to Jews or Gentiles or the church of God. All right, so because he says don't give offense, I feel like we need to talk about being offended. Um, it's something our world knows a lot about, frankly. Uh, the formula for being offended used to look something like this. I'm probably going to offend you even saying this. But the formula of being offended was uh, the older you are, the more likely to be offended, highly offended you are, right? Like your level of offense, uh, 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 your level of offense increased with your age, um, but I think a younger generation has been watching, and now we are in heavy competition for who is the most highly offended in our world, right? Because it is not just the elderly or senior adults who are offended anymore, right? Because now our youngest generation are fighting to be the most highly offended generation of all time, I think, right? They're so offended by the word offended, they have their own word for it now. You know what it is? Triggered, right? And everyone can't wait to be triggered, right? Like, we, we get so offended by everything. And, and I just want to say a side note. I mean, maybe Paul doesn't get to this, but just, just from Adam Caulfield, please stop it. Stop it. 
like our PC culture and all this stuff, like, man, we have just gone way off the rails here. Like, and, and what, what hurts me is when I see this in the church, because it's not just new Christians or unbelievers who are offended. But sometimes it's those who have been in the church the longest. Man, it hurts me. I've seen churches that have split over bringing donuts into the church. I've seen, I don't think that ever happened to our church. <laughs> Um, I've seen I've seen older Christians, mature Christians, who are so offended when a new believer comes in wearing shorts and flip flops. Do you know these days? Do you know what I'm talking about? They're so offended because this new believer didn't know you were supposed to wear your church clothes, or hadn't even heard of church clothes. You know what I'm saying? Like. Like, we're way too offended about all of the wrong ideas. We get offended because they don't know our traditions or our practices. They don't know we started nine. They didn't know that you're supposed to silence your cell phone. You know, like, like they didn't know the rules. And we get, it's so easy for Christians sometimes to be offended. And, and I just think in general, all of us should just kind of stop it. Because I think maybe because number one, does it, does it glorify God in some way, us being offended all the time? Do we really have that much time to give to being offended? Being highly offended. And, and I think it's just a question each of us have to look at. You know, like examine your own heart. Like what is your, what's, what's your offended trigger? Does it happen like that without you even noticing? Or have you got some space in there? Because I think if we're offended like this, like it's going to be really hard for us to add weight to God. So maybe just stop it. Stop being so easily offended. Now, when Paul says, don't give offense, I need to, I need to clarify this again. We're going to come back to our Ottoman here. When Paul says, don't give offense, he doesn't mean that you should be afraid of hurting someone's feelings, which is kind of how we understand it. What he's talking about is we should only be afraid of harming someone else's faith or their walk in faith. When Paul says, don't give offense, what he's saying is don't be an Ottoman. He says your job, whether it's to Christians or non-Christians, like your job is to not be a stumbling block for others, right? Sometimes we think that was our job, to be the gatekeepers, to hold everything. Like, like that's just not your job. Your job isn't, isn't to be the thing that everybody trips up on and trips over and falls over and hurts their toe on. We are the ones who are supposed to, in all things, glorify God and bring others to him. And for Paul, maybe you think this isn't a big deal, but for Paul, this is such an important issue that he says in, uh, I think it's chapter 8, verse 12. He says this, he says, 
to cause to stumble is not just a sin against that person, but a sin against Christ himself. He said, when we become an impediment to the gospel, when we get in the way of the good news, and we're not just sinning against that person, we are sinning against Christ himself. And so he says these words, verse 33, just as we wrap up, he says, I too, I too try to please everyone in everything I do. Now, this doesn't mean Paul's afraid of hurting people's feelings, because he definitely will. He's going to send a severe letter to Corinth that is going to hurt a lot of feelings. Last week we talked about Paul's going to kick somebody out of the church. Like, like this isn't just where he's not, his concern is not hurting their feelings. His concern is about keeping people from the truth of Jesus Christ. When he sends that letter, when he kicks somebody out of the church, his goal, his intention is for them to come back to Christ. And he says, so, so I'm trying to please everyone in everything I do. I don't do what is best for me. I do what is best for others. So that many may be, what's the word? I seriously doubt that your issue today is idolatry. I mean, maybe it is. I seriously doubt that you're struggling in the grocery store looking at food going, man, was this food offered to idols? But how are you using your freedom To what end and purpose are you free in Christ? You see, I think in Christ we have both freedom and purpose. Our purpose is to do it to the glory of God, to live every day like an athlete, disciplining ourselves, letting go of the things we claim as rights, all for the purpose of drawing more to Christ. It's this purpose that we struggle for every single day. Don't by your activity or inactivity be an ottoman. Think about it. This week, have you been an ottoman? This week, have your actions, have they drawn people to the glory of God and his goodness? Have your actions drawn people into the freedom that Christ offers? Or have your actions been a hindrance, a stumbling block? Have you made their path smooth? Have you made it easier for non-believers to find and hear and receive the good news of Jesus Christ? It's time the church got out of its own way. It's time we stopped being offended at everything. It's time we stopped being such a, a stumbling block to those who are searching. And instead, lay down our rights. Lay down all those things that offend us so that we might bring more to Christ. In just a moment, I'm going to say a prayer and dismiss you to a time of communion. We've got the table set up around the room. It's just an important place of response. 
as you take these elements of freedom, ask yourself, have I been an Ottoman this week? Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ. I, I thank you for the real, tangible life that he offers to us today. And Father God, I pray that we would discipline ourselves to that life, that, that we would commit to it. God, maybe I was offended this week, or, or maybe this happened, or maybe someone in here is thinking, well, you don't know what happened to me. Father God, help us to lay all that down. Let us move and breathe out of the grace that we have received. Let us find in the freedom you give us our purpose. That is to draw others to you. Father God, there's no better place to do that. There's no better place to lay down all of ourselves than as we come to your table and remember the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. In his sacrifice, we find life and freedom and hope. And Father God, I hope that that's what happens today. Forgive us, Father, of all of our sins. Help us to live out your word and your message in tangible ways. We love you. And in your son Jesus' name, everyone together says, amen. I invite you to stand and enjoy time of communion together.